Hello and welcome to our AIES podcast, Politics on Point. In this special series of four podcast episodes, we will be covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the European Union as a global actor series in collaboration with the Konrad Auner Foundation here in Vienna. First of all, I would like to introduce you, our audience, to my institute for those who are joining us for the first time. The Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy, or AIES, has been researching on various issues regarding European security and defense policy, the European integration process, and geopolitical developments for over 20 years. Therefore, our focus lies not only on the European neighborhood, transatlantic relations and Austria's foreign, European and security policy, but also on the unfolding developments in the Indo-Pacific and Central Asia. Through its expertise, the AIS has established itself as the leading security policy think tank in all Austria. And now to briefly introduce to you our, our partner for this podcast series. The main focus of the multilateral dialogue of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation in Vienna is on foreign and security policy, especially with regard to the work of Vienna-based international organizations, such as the OSCE, the IEA, and the UN. Through conferences, workshops, seminars, and webinars, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation cooperates with experts and interested parties from politics, science, industry, international organizations, and NGOs. My name is Lawrence Kettle. I'm an EU security and defense expert, and I'm the host of today's episode on EU-China relations between an economic competitor and a systemic rival. In this episode, we will be discussing China's growing economic and strategic influence as one of the most pivotal geopolitical shifts over the last few decades. China has emerged as a major global player, with a growing military presence, a strong economy, and a growing network of strategic partnerships. We will be looking specifically at China's importance for the European Union, namely what opportunities and challenges China's growing economic and strategic influence present for the EU. I'm delighted to welcome our expert speaker for today's discussion, Assistant Professor Dr. Una Alexandra Berzinger-Cherenkova is head of the Riga Stradinch University of Political Science PhD program and the director of the RSU China Studies Center. Una, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So I would like to begin with asking you about China's perception of the EU. In the last few decades, China has become an economic powerhouse and a key global player. It is reducing its dependency on the world while simultaneously increasing the world's dependence on itself. Through China's eyes, how important is the EU on the international stage? And do you think China sees the EU as a global player or a regional actor? Well, first of all, uh, of course, China prefers bilateral relationships rather than, you know, regional relationships or relationships with a grouping. But at the same time, um, of course, the EU is important for China because it is the only other Western uh, partner or or kind of a, a combination, a constellation of partners uh, besides the U.S. And with the U.S., we know we all know how that's going, having read China's uh, paper on uh, U.S. hegemony just recently, a month ago or so. So um, the EU kind of 
with all its issues, is still being cast as as the relatively good guy in the West. But of course, uh, we have to keep in mind that China does not always agree to the regional um, frameworks that exist or that have a certain political connotation. China likes to come up with its own redivisions, including in Europe, right? So we've uh, seen 16 plus one, you know, the, the rise and fall of 16 plus one from 2012 onwards. Um, and then, you know, this arch ending in just 14 countries remaining in 2020, uh, um, 2022. And now we've also, and, and that was, but that was an interesting case, right? Because that was China cr kind of imposing its own view on Europe. So some countries were EU members, some weren't, right? So this was also a demonstration of the fact that, you know, uh, the EU is is not exactly, uh, is, is more of a line in the sand, but not kind of a, a, a wall, uh, a, a, an entity surrounded by a wall and, and is, is a solid entity in, in China's eyes. So and another example of the same thinking, of course, is Belt and Road, right? So um, Europe was initially presented and cast as this destination for, for, for Belt and Road and, you know, the, especially for, for the road portion of the uh, Silk Road um, uh, economic belt, the idea that you would have to, um, um, you know, connect China with, with Europe was extremely important there. But also we see that, uh, of course, China was still talking to countries bilaterally and was also trying to come up with these kind of picking uh, regions or creating regions or whichever way you want to call it, um, ending up with an interesting list of partners. And, you know, coincidentally, one of them, the, the very important uh, symbolically extremely important partner, Italy, is right now thinking about not extending the Belt and Road Memorandum with China, right? And and which which is uh, so basically, you have to walk away from the from from a Belt and Road Memorandum, or it will be extended um, in perpetuity. So there's right now, you know, Georgia Maloney speaks about um, about uh, not um, extending this uh, purposefully. So um, that also kind of signals perhaps um, a decrease in China's creative region shaping in Europe. What does that mean? Does that mean they will uh, come back to, uh, to, 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 you know, to looking at Brussels as the point of contact uh, for European matters? Not necessarily. Like I said, China prefers bilateral one-on-one -on -one conversations with European stronger powers, with stronger European powers. And of course, they see Britain as a part of that constellation, You know, the United Kingdom as a part of that constellation. So uh, the EU, yes and no, yes in a sense, because it is a good way to offset the US, uh, to kind of try to tug the EU politically away from the US, to applaud concepts such as European strategic autonomy, um, and and say, oh, this is great stuff. You don't need to be, you know, the lackeys of, of the United States, that kind of thinking. But when it comes to more practical issues, of course, um, for China, bilateral ties are a way to go. Hmm, interesting. Um, secondly, what impact did the war in Ukraine have on China-EU relations? China is still trying to maintain um, trying to remain neutral in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, despite international pressure. 
Do you think this will change in the near future? And if so, what impact could this have on EU-China relations in the long term? Well, certainly China had been trying to get this message across that it has a neutral position in, in, in this uh, case, but they haven't really been able to convince the Europeans of that, right? Um, or the Westerners at large. Um, of course, the statements coming out of China indeed are, you know, um, ambiguous uh, or, well, it's hard to call them neutral, but it's certainly not. Of course, they, so they're trying to walk a, a tight line between doing everything not to endorse an American-based worldview, right, to use this, use Russia's Russia's war in Ukraine, Russia's attack on Ukraine uh, as uh, an, an example to to prove their point, right? That there's uh, a, a, that there's that the current security system is based on U.S. Um, hegemony, and that it is just not working out. That that's why con countries are being dragged into conflict. So they are using opportunistically the the value added for their ideology that this conflict brings. In a sense, this way also endorsing Russia's reason uh, or Russia's. Uh, the, the reasons that Russia is putting forward for attacking Ukraine, right? Obviously ridiculous reasons. So China is kind of endorsing that. So it's hard to say um, that they are um, neutral. So, but the other side of this tight line that they're walking, right? So trying to, doing everything not to endorse the American worldview, but on the other hand, not to fall uh, fall in squarely with the Russian worldview either, because that um, is not very productive for for China um, economically and also politically. Now is just not the time to, you know, uh, when China has its own interests at stake and its own core interests at stake, it's not very productive, perhaps not very uh, well thought out right now to uh, decrease the level of communication with the West over a Russian issue, over something that's Russia's problem, right? Um, and, and Russian ideology. Uh, so it's hard to call this neutral, um, but they're definitely trying to kind of walk that line uh, with with uh, not all with with kind of, you know, like a, um, a a person walking on a tightrope, but they're not perfect at their craft. So they would uh, shake a little bit and, and their 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 leg would slip um, now and then. And we see that, but we actually see that in both directions. So that is why we're following a lot of this. So, of course, um, we call this information um, noise, but not in a derogative way. But, you know, when, when uh, people who analyze the Russia-China politics, including myself, there are a lot of contradicting news. And sometimes you have to understand whether this is a whether they have a strategic impact or not. Probably same thing with any regional analysis, of course. Right. Yes. It's not just a Russia-China case. And so in this case, um, we have a lot of noise so we have contradictory statements you know we have um we're not sure whether china is really helping russia evade sanctions systemically and purposefully uh whether china is and when i'm saying china i mean china is a state actor right there is of course also business actors that are facilitating this we don't know about the w's or we do rather know about the w's that w's has been flowing into russia from china uh, but it's it's Still hard to kind of catch this and to to um, arrange this this kind of behavior as Russia as China's support to Russia. So a lot of noise there. And then on the other hand, you know, we have China voting on a resolution that kind of calls Russia an aggressor, and that's is is this a big deal? What is this? What does it mean? But so I think that 
when we view this relationship, um, and what does it mean for your the second part of your question was what does that mean for for Europe China right? Uh, well, of course, when it's such a balancing act, then it's like I said, China has not convinced Europe of its neutrality. Um, so definitely, this Russia's attack on Ukraine has hurt China-Europe relations on top of everything else. So China's position here has had a damaging effect. Um, and But perhaps this is also a regional matter. And China is very, like when we spoke about regions and region shaping, we understand that China likes to break down Europe mentally into sub-regions. And of course, um, the extreme deterioration and the, mm, the kind of loss of um, uh, China's image has happened um, in in the Baltics and, and and perhaps we could also say Poland. So some of the some of the countries that are indeed on the closest to Ukraine and have um, have this feeling that oh we could have been on the other side we could have shared uh, Ukraine's destiny here right had it not been for NATO and the EU. So um, here even though. In Lithuania, China was an issue before for different reasons, but in Latvia, where I'm sitting, uh, China was kind of a distance concerned. We um, would echo some of the stories about uh, technological uh, competition, sometimes unfair competition, you know, level playing field, these kinds of things, data um, and, and Chinese uh, uh, software and hardware you know, challenges. Uh, but it was kind of something that we got secondhand. When China's position or lack thereof started coming out in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that really hurt China's image in, in, in our country. Whether that's the case in other European capitals, well, I think China's been really trying to do damage control here. And we see a lot of, again, bilateral, uh, bilateral dialogues um, uh, going, uh, going between China and larger European states' capitals. Uh, there is there was a visit just now. Um, so, and, and again, by the way, the visit is interesting because the Norway is included, right? So again, mm. to tell, to, to prove my point, it's not about endorsing the EU. It's about saying Europe is something bigger, different, and we, you know, look at Europe every time differently. So, uh, sorry for that um, uh, tangent. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think that there is some damage control involved and there is a very strong, emphasis on on business ties and on mutual dependency here in China's messaging. So we'll see. We'll see which way it does the do the national will the national policies of bigger European member states go. Hmm. On the EU level, I think when it comes to um, EU um, representatives, we've seen some strong language, of course, with um, Ursula von der Leyen's speech at Merricks, where she pointed out uh, these, 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 these. Uh, uh, well, China's position on 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 Ukraine, and also, of course, the published but never read uh, Borrell's speech uh, that was supposed to be read in in Beijing, um, where again, in in writing, the position of the EU on China hinges on China's position towards Ukraine or Russia's invasion towards Ukraine. Of course, we do know that Borrell does sometimes also have ambiguous and sometimes contradictory messaging um, in, in his speeches, but this time it's on black and white. 
um, and we've never had a delivery, so this is not a compare against delivery. Now, in recent times, it has become clear that the EU needs a new approach that should focus on de-risking, but not decoupling when it comes to its relations with China. How should the EU position itself vis-a-vis -vis China? For instance, when it comes to issues such as human rights violations or climate action? Well, I think uh, that, of course, uh, de-risking is an interesting concept. Um, it is not, it is, it is realistic, right? It, it, first of all, is realistic because when we talk about decoupling, the first point of the agenda is always, and the longest point of the agenda is people arguing whether that's actually possible, you know, and then coming to terms that it's not possible and then kind of just saying, what can we do um, to, to minimize the risks, basically. So I think jumping into de-risking as, 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 a, as, a, as an approach is, 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 is actually, um, is, 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 worth, is worthwhile. Uh, but on the bigger, and I think this de-risking um, idea actually does allow for uh, exchanges and cooperation on bigger issues, including climate change. Um, of course, we also have to remember that these bigger positive agenda points, of course, it's very hard to call a, uh, a climate change a positive agenda point because it, 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 could it, it, it could very well be that this will be the catastrophe that that our generation will, will will see so it's not exactly a positive agenda point it's an un, un, uh, hard to avoid catastrophe but still right now we do know that in political agendas it's something that people agree on so um, so so that's something you can put put into an agenda but we have to remember that actually uh, there's also some um, this can also be weaponized and we don't see that kind of behavior from China yet but we've had a leak on Russia's approach to climate debate um, surround, uh, around the Baltic Sea. So thinking that talking about climate and about um, um, nature preservation and diversity preservation in the Baltic Sea could be an inroad back to the table in Europe, to the conversation, to be allowed back in uh, through these um, scientific agendas and, and these uh, uh, ecological overarching agenda. So we also have to remember that uh, there is this kind of a tool in, in the toolbox of, of, of some authoritarian states. Right, interesting. Um, finally then, I think I would like to ask you about the tensions in the Strait of Taiwan, as it's been so publicized in the media recently. In your opinion, how should the EU position itself in the escalating Taiwan conflict between the United States and China? We are not sure whether it is escalating. There's definitely, of course, um, there's tension, absolutely. Mm. There is again, quote unquote, noise, right? We have different, um, often contradicting reports just today or yesterday, we had a Nikkei article that, um, of course, doesn't really quote um, any sources by name, but does write about the fact that in Chinese um, messaging, the censors have not been stopping the people who are writing about, oh, the fact that if China attacks Taiwan, it would open a forefront situation for China, which would be disastrous, right? So that's being 
either not being censored or being censored uh, not uh, in in a sense that that these messages still slip through, and so they're being posted. So the author of the of the of uh, of the article makes the assumption that that could mean that the Chinese leadership is actually signaling and letting through the mouths of the netizens, you know, this out the signal that this is not a good time to to do anything militarily. This could cost us dearly. That we could fail. Um, and, uh, and not not even talking about the economic impact it, it would have, but just any even purely military impact it would have on China. So uh, we cannot, you know, absolutely assume that there is something brewing um, on Taiwan short term. I do have to say I'm not um, a military analyst, so it's this is very speculative. It's definitely not my place to talk about to talk about the straits. But I, but you asked this from a European perspective. Well, it's hard for me to respond which would be the right approach here, but certainly signaling that this is not our issue is not the right approach, right? We can say that this is probably not, uh, not how 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 Europe should should position itself. Right. Um, of course, at the end of the day it's important what Taiwan thinks here. So, and I think that, that this way, the exchanges that European parliamentarians have been having, uh, various national par parliamentarians with Taiwan, uh, even though China reacts very strongly are actually a good thing because, you know, you can compare notes like that. This is indeed, these are meetings. These are real meetings where rather than assuming what Taiwan thinks, uh, our policymakers get to ask them um, about these risks. So definitely, uh, our position needs to be informed, not just based on headlines, but based on real exchanges with the policymakers of Taiwan. So um, we have reached the end of our time for this podcast episode, but I would like to say a very big thank you to our guest, Assistant Professor Dr. Una Alexander Bezinger-Cherenkova, for some very insightful and very thought-provoking responses. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, it's been an honor. This has been Politics on Point, and I have been your host, Lawrence Kettle. <laughs>